want to talk tonight about the practice that we're practicing of shamatha vipassana. Shamatha or samadhi means calm, serenity, tranquility, concentration, absorption. And vipassana means to see into things exactly as they are. So put together, this means calmly seeing into things exactly as they are. Calmly seeing into phenomena, seeing into ourselves exactly as we are. Our first work is the work of calm, of serenity, of taming the mind. And the Buddha had a lot of images for an untamed mind, the mind that we begin practice with. Images such as the mind being like a butterfly flitting from phenomena to phenomena, thought to thought, mood to mood. Being like a monkey, like a restless monkey swinging from branch to branch. Like a grasshopper hopping. Like a wobbling chair. This is one of the examples used, is of a chair with three legs on the ground with one leg a little short. So it wobbles, it's not steady. You sit in it and it's shaky. Of a waterfall, a waterfall that won't stop, and of an unruly child, a child that won't mind its parents, that runs all over the place and is very argumentative. The result of this kind of a mind is that we barely skim over the possibilities in life. If we stay on the level of grasshopper mind or monkey mind, the mind is constantly preoccupied. And because of this, it's very superficial. There's not much depth to it. There's not much space or much room in it because of the preoccupation. Thoreau once said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. And this we can see is is probably true. Thurber once said, most men live lives of noisy desperation. (laughs) And this we can see is probably even more true. This is insight meditation, and the first insight we get is the nature of the mind being chaotic, wild, unruly. And this is, this is a very important insight to have. It's one that we don't welcome open-heartedly all the time, but it is the foundation 
it is what helps us to really begin to get the energy together to do what it is that we're doing. So it is an essential insight to have. Without this insight, it's as if we're swimming in water. And we're so familiar with things that we're used to being imprisoned. We're used to the mind being chaotic and wild. It's our environment. And we don't question it all that much. And then we begin to just sit and to do something so simple as to just be with the breath. And we do begin a process of questioning. Does it have to be this way? Has it always been this way? Oh, my goodness. But questioning begins to occur, a very important level of questioning. So we begin by taming the mind. And let me read you something that the Buddha said about taming the mind. Yogis, I know not of any other single thing so intractable as the untamed mind. The untamed mind is indeed a thing untractable. Monks, yogis, I know not of any other single thing so tractable as the tamed mind. The tamed mind is indeed a thing tractable. Yogis, I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great loss as the untamed mind. The untamed mind indeed conduces to great loss. Yogis, I know not of any other single thing so conducive to great profit as the tamed mind. The tamed mind indeed conduces to great profit. Yogis, I know not of any other single thing that brings such woe as the mind that is untamed, uncontrolled, unguarded, and unrestrained. Such a mind indeed brings great woe. Yogis, I know not of any other single thing that brings such bliss as the mind that is tamed, controlled, guarded, and restrained. Such a mind indeed brings great bliss. So this is our first step on the path is taming the mind, guarding the mind, restraining the mind. As the mind becomes more tamed, it's as if we have resources that we didn't know we had. It's as if the mind becomes like a still, vast pool that is unmoving in which we can really see to the bottom and use what's there. We are open to a certain level of depth that is not possible when the mind is running around. That is not possible when there is preoccupation always happening. As the preoccupation begins to shift and more space opens up, we have use of a certain level of depth that we didn't have use of before. We know of a certain level of depth that inspires and gives us faith. It's as if when we begin practice, we're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. 
And before we even heard of practice, we were running around trying to grab something on this boat to find happiness and freedom from, satisfaction from. So running around, the boat shifting and moving, and running around trying to find happiness somewhere. And as the mind begins to be tamed, we kind of find ourselves able to move on the boat and shift with that which is happening. With some degree of steadiness and stability, we find a certain groundedness and steadiness in our experience. And so the boat is still moving, but we're able to stay still in the midst of whatever it is that's happening. In the midst of taming this mind, we come to see, meet, get introduced to the various bailings over true clarity of mind, of heart. And these are called veilings or hindrances, that which hinders clear seeing, that which hinders the natural luminescence of the heart, of the mind. And this is a very necessary part of our practice, beginning to truly come to see desire or wanting, which is described as very brightly colored dyes being tossed into this vast pool. So a pool of water in which brightly colored dyes are clouding it up or distracting us. The second is aversion or anger. And this is like the water boiling, boiling water, coming in contact with boiling water. And perhaps resentment I'm kind of making this up. This isn't classical. Perhaps (laughs) resentment is boiling water under the surface. It's still boiling water, but it's, it's underneath. The third is restlessness and agitation. And this is when the wind is rippling the water and causing it to go all over the place. The fourth being sleepiness, or otherwise known as sloth and torpor, which is a much better name for it. (laughs) It's very accurate. This is like moss or algae being in this water. So very cloudy, very dull description of inertia. And the fifth is doubt. Doubt in oneself, doubt in the practice, a lack of confidence, a lot of confusion. And this is like the water being just a lot of mud, you know, mud coming up from the bottom and clouding this vast pool of water. It's a great image because we can see that without the hindrances, there is just this vast pool of water, of mind. And with the hindrances, all these different things are happening. In our taming of the mind, what begins to happen is very, very gradually, very, very gradually, the hindrances start to go underground. Samadhi, or calm, begins to suppress the hindrances. So they're still there. They're still definitely alive. 
but they're not giving us quite as much trouble as they had been. So this is what begins to happen naturally. It's not something that happens to one person and won't happen to you. Everyone has the same Buddha nature. It is something that happens quite naturally that what happens through the development of calm and quietness and serenity, quite naturally, the veilings are being affected. It's a natural law. These veilings begin to be affected. And we might even be able to notice at various points in our practice this actuality that maybe at one point there was tons of sleepiness in one's practice, and then it begins to ease just a little bit, maybe just slightly by whatever day. Or maybe tons of restlessness, agitation for, for some years, and then we begin to notice that it begins to shift, it begins to change, and calm is there in its place. Maybe there's a lot of aversion, a lot of desire, a lot of wanting, Maybe there are tons of questions of confusion, of doubt, of self-judgment. And gradually, and again, this is just the nature of the mind. It's true for everyone who practices. At some point, we can see that there is some degree of calmness. If not grabbed at, if not clutched at, there's even more calmness available. So this is the natural function of shamatha, or calm, quietness, serenity, is that the hindrances begin to go into abeyance a bit and actually can go into abeyance quite a bit. So in a way, we can see that our practice is a movement from the spaciness that we begin with, where the mind is very spacey and preoccupied and all over the place, to a certain degree of spaciousness, of openness, of being able to be with whatever it is that's happening. And the link between spaciness and spaciousness is calm. And it is being with one object generally, or one subject, which for us is the breath. So the breath, we can say, is our link between spaciness of heart, spaciness of mind, and true spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of mind. Within this spaciousness, when there is some degree of calmness available to us, within this spaciousness, we are able to open to and accommodate whatever it is that arises without exception. More and more, we are able to open to and welcome and accept whatever emotion is happening, whatever mood is happening, whatever thought is happening, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. There is enough room in the heart. There is enough space in the mind to be able to be with our experience without pushing it away, without holding on to it. Room for everything. Room for whatever our life is presenting us with. 
this room, this spaciousness comes about through the development of calm, through being with the breath in the way that we have. Quite naturally, a certain degree of spaciousness is available to us. So it's as if we start all over the place, just, you know, really spaced out, and then we come in, we use the breath, and we come in, we say, no, not this, not that, just the breath, not this, not that other thing, not that mood, not that emotion, just the breath, just the breath. And we calm the heart, we calm the mind through being with just the breath. And it's, it's quite narrow, you know, just the breath is quite narrow. And then out of this, what naturally happens is spaciousness, is being able to be with whatever it is that's happening without being knocked off balance, without being as overwhelmed or caught or lost or pushed around by our experience. If it's pleasurable, we're not quite as pulled in by it. If it's not pleasant, we're not quite as repelled or pushed away by it. And if it's neutral, we can see it as it is. We're more able to be with things exactly as they are. And this is the realm of Vipassana. This is the realm of seeing into things as they are. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. So this is what our practice evolves into, is doing nothing and learning how to be rather than to do, really embracing a beingness with whatever it is that's happening, rather than having any agenda or plan, having to manipulate or move anything around, having to stave off certain things and pull in other things, but a very balanced evenness of mind where we're just sitting quietly, doing nothing at all, doing nothing at all. And out of this, spring comes. And out of this, the Dharma, the truth, reveals itself. And we can see naturally how things are without effort, without any effort whatsoever. The truth naturally reveals itself simply through our staying present and awake and clear in the midst of our experience, whatever our experience might be. So this is the realm, you could say, of knowledge, of self-knowledge, seeing clearly how things are. It's a different kind of knowledge than we're generally used to. I'll tell a story about my father that either Larry or I usually tell on every retreat because it's so great. (laughs) I'll tell it this time. (laughs) I got it first. (laughs) In the beginning of my practice, I sat a three-month course, and um, my parents weren't 
all that thrilled about me being not in contact with them through the phone for three months. And um, I decided to make one phone call during that time, and I called up from the basement of IMS and at Thanksgiving and, and talked to my father. I got him on the phone. And he wanted to come pick me up and take me home for the day, just, just for Thanksgiving. You know? And then he, he said he would drive me back again. He would just get me the mo- in the morning and drive me back in the afternoon. And he couldn't understand why I couldn't go. And, you know, um, I go to the Buddha for refuge for the first time, for the second time, for the third time. Well, he said, for the hundredth time, why are you doing this retreat? <laughs> this is a very big question. And I said something about self-knowledge being why I was doing the retreat. And his answer was classic. He said, uh, oh, in that case, it's no problem. I'll tell you everything you want to know about yourself. (laughs) And he really meant it. (laughs) It was quite endearing, actually, this this response. But this this is not the kind of self-knowledge that we're we're interested in here. It's a little bit different. You know, we begin practice and we realize at a certain point that we have all these images about who we are. We think we're this kind of a person. We think we're that kind of a person. We think we'd never think this particular kind of thought. We never would have this, you know, certain emotion. Other people do, but I don't, that kind of thing. We have a lot of images about who we are. And then we begin practice and we really meet with those images, and it can be quite devastating, as we know. It can be quite shocking to see the image and then to see the reality. And oftentimes, for a certain amount of time in practice, which varies according to the individual, we can be fairly off balance at this point when there is a lot of information coming towards us and there is a huge gap between who we thought we were and who we see we are, that I can have this thought, indeed I am having this thought, that I can feel this emotion because this is what I am feeling right now. And in this process of self-honesty, you know, it it can be, obviously, in, in revealing ourselves to ourselves, it can be quite shocking. The problem is that Sometimes we can get stuck in this place and think that, ah, I wasn't who I thought I was, but now I know who I am. You know, I wasn't this image, but now I've discovered who I am. I am more selfish than I thought I was. I am more demanding than I thought I was. I am more manipulative, always bad news, than, than I thought I was. Yeah. And, in this, in this space, it's very, very easy to identify with the negative. And it's so important for us to see that it's not identifying with anything. It's not identifying with the images. It's not identifying with the positive aspects of what we see, of being a good person, of being a fine person, a kind person. And it's also not identifying with being a creep or being a, 
judgmental person or being a person who criticizes others endlessly. It's not identifying with this either. This is not who we are. So it's not as if we begin practice and we discover, oh, I'm not this, so I find out I'm this instead. We're not this instead either. This is not who we are either. And so in this phase, and it is a phase, there does need to be a great amount of generosity and compassion and the willingness to continue, the willingness to see from moment to moment what it is that is happening without identifying with our experience, without defining ourselves by our experience. I'm having a pleasant experience right now, so I am this kind of a person. I'm having a difficult experience right now. I'm criticizing a lot. I'm judging people a lot, so I'm this kind of a person. Attempting to not draw these kinds of conclusions because it's not true. It's just simply not true. It's another, it's, it's an important phase. It's a necessary phase in practice. But we don't want to get stuck there. We really want to allow the process to flow. We really want to allow the practice to work on us. seems like someone asked Tofu Roshi about this phase of practice. They said, Dear Tofu Roshi, I am weird. Can I help it? (laughs) Sincerely, Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Anonymous, I would have to make your acquaintance before I could answer your question. (laughs) Were you born weird or did you later become so? In any case, the most important thing is to accept yourself as you are. Most of the great, many of the great Buddhist teachers of history were very eccentric individuals. Did you know that the ancient Chinese master Bushwalk had the right hand of a woman and the left hand of a man? (laughs) It is unknown to this day whether Bushwalk was male or female. As for Master Zafu, he insisted on wearing his eating bowl to bed as a nightcap. (laughs) I beg you to accept yourself as you are. Buddhist practice is what you may call a come-as-you-are party. (laughs) This this goes along with what Larry was saying about um, come-what-may singing. So come as you are party. And truly, it is out of seeing what is, seeing ourselves as we are without identification with what it is that we're seeing. This is what reveals the Dharma and the truth to us. So we are in the process of opening without excluding anything learning how to be with our experience without doing anything about it. Alive to what's happening without identifying with anything at all, without identifying with any particular thought, without fixating, grasping, contracting around any particular feeling or mood. We are sitting doing nothing without any sense of plan, without any sense of agenda, 
without any sense of attainment. We are sitting without doing, without evaluating, without assuming what it is that is happening, without drawing conclusions. From the perspective of mindfulness, everything is of equal value. Whatever it is that is happening is as important or not important as anything else. Everything is equal. So the most dramatic idea or thought is equal to the most terrible of thoughts. The most terrible thoughts is equal to the most mundane of feelings or of thoughts. From the perspective of mindfulness, boredom is as worthy of our respect as is bliss, as is anger. It's the same thing from the perspective of mindfulness because what we are encouraging is the growth of awareness, is that which is beyond, is that which transcends whatever the content of our experience may be. And this is part of finding out who or what we truly are. Some time ago, I spoke with one of my sisters. This is family stories, I guess, tonight on the phone. She lives down in Florida, and she does some um, hospice work. And when she first began to do this kind of work, it was quite difficult for her to do, and she had a lot of trouble in it, and she thought she might stop doing it. And she's been doing it now for two years, working in, in hospice for two years, and she's loving it. She's really enjoying it. She got over the hump, and now she's really, really loving the work. And she said that what appeals to her most about the work, what is, is, keeps her in there the most, is that every time she is sitting with someone who is dying, she has this particular thought about how things are, and then she finds out it's not so. Over and over again, this idea that she has, and it can be anything at all, it's not specific, but finding out that what she thought was so isn't at all. This is one dimension of the work for her that really keeps her there because she sees that she doesn't know anything. And this is, this is our work in meditation is to really come to knowing that we don't know. In knowing that we don't know, we are open to everything. We are open to the wisdom of the universe filling us. If we think that we know, we're already full. There's no room. If we're preoccupied with thought, there's no room. With spaciousness, with openness, we can learn from whatever our experience is without exception. One aspect of what we see is impermanence is that everything is changing from moment to moment. What we can see out of seeing that everything is changing from moment to moment 
is that any time we hang on, any time we attach, any time we want things to be any particular way, immediately there's a problem. Immediately there's contraction. Immediately there's some degree of suffering. And so we can begin to see that in letting things be, not pushing away, not forcing anything out of our life, but simply in being and in letting things be, we can let things be instead of attaching, instead of holding on, instead of grasping. We can see that when we have any attachment to who we are, it's a problem. Let me read you something by Chang Su. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again, and yet again, and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet, if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. Okay, let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.